Mac Pow Users, episode 213, MPU Live for September 6, 2014. Hey everybody! Happy Saturday, Katie Floyd. How are Happy you? Happy Saturday. I'm hanging in there. You know, we we always we don't quite do these live shows often enough, uh, but I'm always very energized when we do them. Yeah, it's fun. I get I get kind of pumped up. I woke up early today. I was going through all the email and feedback and getting the outline together, and got me excited. Yeah, I'm um, excited too. Yeah. Um, so anyway, here we are recording another Mac Power Users Live. We've got a guest, and we've got some great feedback. We're going to be covering a variety of topics. So I guess we should just get this show on the road. Uh, with us today as our guest is a friend of the show. Uh, Mike has been writing for some time, Mike Rogers. Mike's a principal at a kindergarten through eighth grade school. And he does a website, Tech Advance, A-D-T-E-C-H-A-D-V-A-N-C-E. And Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Mike, I think I heard you, um, and we'll have to link this in the show notes. You had an appearance on Systematic with our our friend Brett Terpstra drink recently, right? Yes, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Now, just to be clear, Brett stole you from us because we had been talking to you first. So, uh, yeah, I, I hope you guys weren't offended by that. Well, we didn't get a check or anything. I'm kind of mad. <laughs> Brett knows. Actually, Brett usually pays me in scripts. He he pays everybody in scripts. Yes, exactly. <laughs> But that's um, all right. Despite the fact that Brett got you first, um, we, you know, we, we, we always know where your loyalties lie. But one of the things you, you wrote into us a while ago, but you are a big advocate of technology use and, and being a principal. And I know you were a teacher before that. Uh, you've got a, some great, interesting uses of technology in the classroom, particularly technology using iOS devices, because I know as a principal, one of the things you have to do is to go oversee you know, uh, all of your teachers and go from classroom to classroom. And so you've developed a really interesting set of workflows for your iOS device so that you can actually get work done and complete the work on your iOS device rather than setting yourself up for having to later go back to your Mac and and finish things. And while these iOS devices are, are great for taking notes and doing things, what I really found interesting about your workflows is you have actually completed the task, everything on your iOS device requiring very little, if any, follow up from the Mac. And I think that's maybe unique about some of your workflows. Yeah, I used to have to go back, um, Actually, I use a PC uh, at my school, uh, so I used to have to go back and I had to cut and paste and and figure out, you know, how to get these notes that I had taken in the classroom uh, back to the teachers, and that always involved an intermediate middleman, if you will, of using the PC. Uh, but I figured out a way to use drafts to um, take notes uh, in the classroom while I'm observing teachers. Well, maybe tell us a little bit about what what the type of things are that you do and what the problems were that you need to be solved and, and how you used your iOS device to do this. Sure. Yeah. I, I, what I've what I like to do is uh, be in the classroom as much as possible, uh, which is easier said than done due to all the other duties uh, you know, that I have as a, a principal. But I, I like to go into the classroom and, and see what's happening. Uh, these are kind of in very, very informal. Uh, I call them classroom walkthroughs. And it's not a formal observation of a teacher. That's a little bit more of a comprehensive uh, sort of look at a lesson. But I like to pop in for three to five minutes and just uh, take a look at what's happening in the classroom. I just walk right to the back and uh, just observe. And what I, what I had done in the past is I would have to take notes somewhere. You know, I would maybe take them on iOS, but I'd have to 
uh, having that intermediate step. And after I started using drafts, I, I figured out a way basically where I could take notes in drafts and then uh, create a workflow to get that information where I needed it to be. And so basically the way that I, I did this was to um, use the first line of a draft, uh, a blank draft, and uh, use that as the teacher's uh, first initial and last name, which of course also happens to be the way that their email addresses are configured. Um, so for example, if I was just observing myself, um, I would say M Rogers. And then uh, below that, I just take my notes, kind of stream of consciousness sort of things right there in the classroom. And I've gotten pretty good at typing on the on the iP or iPhone keyboard that way. And then what I would do is uh, so I have this action. Are you doing it, Mike? Are you, are you doing mm -hmm. that on the iPhone or the iPad? I'm doing it on the iPhone. Uh, when I'm just doing wow. the very informal walkthroughs, um, I'm only in there for, for three to five minutes. I just want to get a glimpse of what's happening. And these are not scheduled with the teachers in advance. And it's not a gotcha thing. It's, it's, they just know that I like to come in and see what's happening. So, um, I'm just recording, you know, a, a few paragraphs usually, uh, and, and just writing things down. And then with drafts, I have an action set up that, uh, then takes all the information that I've written down and it pops it, uh, into a Google drive spreadsheet. And what it does is it reads the first line of drafts and gets the teacher's name. And then if that uh, CSV file in Google Drive has not been created, it will create it with that name of the teacher. And then it will include the body of the note, which is everything after the first line. And it will put that into the spreadsheet and it will timestamp it. Then, of course, I'm doing this multiple times a week, hopefully, or at least multiple, multiple times a month. And, uh, you know, if the CSV file already exists like mrogers.csv, then it will just append in a different row the next observation. So then I have a, a file, a CSV file for every single teacher in the school, which contains all of the information that I recorded when I was in their classroom, uh, and then I can sort it by date and, and things like that. So that's sort of the first action that I have set up. And then the second All right, action, but before you go any any further, let's let's stop there for a minute. And I don't know if you've got your iPhone in front of you, but walk us through that action a little bit in drafts, because some people are saying, wow, that sounds cool, but I can't even fathom on how something like that would even begin to be set up. Mm -hmm. And actually, now that I'm I'm looking at it, uh, I actually misspoke. It's not a Google Drive action. It's actually a Dropbox action. Um so okay. basically, uh, so there, you, if you set up a new Dropbox action and, and when you do that, you have to set a path. Um, so I have, a, I have a special path set for this walkthrough information in my Dropbox folder. Uh, and then the file name um, is the first line of the draft, and which in drafts terminology, they would call that the title. So um, you, you enclose the word title by double brackets. And so that's the title of the file. Uh, you set the extension uh, of the file to be CSV. And then uh, you set it to append. And then the template, uh, if you happen to be looking at drafts right now, uh, the template would be just uh, time, double bracketed, and then body, double bracketed, uh, with a comma in between those. So the first row of the comma-separated value file in Dropbox is the timestamp. And then the second, I'm sorry, the first column and then the second column is the body, everything after the first line. So that's how the information gets into the CSV file. And then uh, when the CSV file does not exist previously, like if I'm observing a new teacher, 
then it creates that CSV file with, with the teacher's name. It's actually a, a, it's a fairly simple um, action. It, it sounds a little bit complicated, but um, it's pretty straightforward. And, and the link, uh, if you put a link in the show notes to the, the post I wrote about this on, on my website, uh, people can see a screenshot that shows the whole thing in, in one screenshot. So um, Yeah, we'll do that for sure. Yeah. But then at some point you've got to hook up Dropbox to Google Drive because right now you've got a series of CSV files sitting in, in Dropbox. Correct. Yes. And, and what I can do, um, I, I can just open that in Excel, though, from my PC if I need to read what I've written. So I actually misspoke when I said it was Google Drive. It's just I had forgotten. It's been a while since I've been using this. So, oh, okay. Um, okay. It, so I don't actually use Google Drive at all. If I want to read the notes at the end of the year, for example, or at the trimester, um, I can just open up the CSV file in Excel or, or on the Mac also uh, in Numbers, and I'll see everything there that I've recorded. Excellent. And, and then, yeah, and then the second action, uh, there's actually a second action that I use, and, and, and it's to email what I've just written to the teacher. And I found this to be really helpful because, uh, you know, the teachers would like to know what I am seeing from my perspective. And that's, that's part of the whole process of observing teachers is uh, letting them know what I'm seeing. And then, uh, you know, I don't often see any big problems, but uh, if there's something that we, you know, we could talk about, or if I have an idea or, or they want to clarify something, they have the information that I've written in my notes because I have a second action set up that basically is an email action. And the email action in drafts basically, again, takes that first line, which is the teacher's name. And if it was me, it would be M Rogers. And it's, um, in the to field of an email action, you can, you can set that up. So you have double brackets with title in between them and then at the email address that we all have. And then basically uh, from there, it, there's a template set up um, below that where it says, dear M Rogers comma. And then I have a template set up that just says, thanks for letting me observe in your classroom on. And then it includes the timestamp. Here's what I recorded. And then I again, enclose uh, the word body in double brackets and then once I tap that action, it automatically sends whatever I have recorded in the uh, CSV file in Dropbox to the teacher so they know what I saw. Now, are you doing those as two separate actions? I mean, the Dropbox submittal and the email, or is that just one tap? Uh, there's one tap to record the information in Dropbox, and then there's a second tap to do the email action. And I think okay. now there's a way for me to link those two together. Uh, and I, I haven't gone through the, the process of doing that, um, but I think that would be pretty easy to actually link, to chain those two together so I could do it with one tap, I think. Yeah, there's nothing more maddening than having like a supervisor or someone who has authority over you sit there and take notes about you and you never have any idea what they wrote down. <laughs> right. And that, that to me defeats the purpose, especially with, with teaching. Uh, you know, I, I really want the teachers to know what it is that I am seeing. And then, you know, if they get this email, I mean, they get it before I walk out the door, you know, and later in the day yeah. when they have time, they're going to read this email. And, you know, if I've misunderstood something uh, that they were doing in the classroom, like if I misunderstood the objective of the lesson, then they can just send me an email reply and clarify that. Um, but usually, you know, it, it's just a really simple way and it, it works out well for everybody. And then there's no big secret about, you know, what I'm thinking <laughs> when I'm in the classroom yeah. because I'm, you know, it's if we want instruction to be great. And if we want the kids to be successful, then the teachers need to know, uh, you know, what I'm thinking about their teaching. And it's just a very positive way of doing things. It keeps things very transparent and, and it helps to have, you know, it helps to have really great relationships with the teachers as well. 
you know, drafts is only going to get better with iOS eight. There's some really great stuff coming. Yeah. You, you sound like maybe you have a heads up on that. I, I, I can't, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> well, I'm excited with all these, ex, with all these extensions, you know, that we're going to see, I, oh, I assume yeah. in just a few weeks. Uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing how I can make things even more efficient. You know, uh, th- just this, these two little workflows alone have just saved me tons of time. I mean, uh, you know, before it, it was just a really elaborate, you know, and time consuming task to get all this information to the teachers. And it just saves me a ton of time. Well, we've got a show coming where we're going to focus on drafts and launch center pro. And it's, uh, it's actually it's very, scheduled now. Yeah. It's very much in the work. So hopefully we can teach you a few new tricks with it too. And if you're out there and you haven't tried drafts yet, you really should. I, I just hear from so many people like the, the thing Mike is doing, I think could work really in any business where you sat and took a few notes and wanted to keep a record. Mm-hmm. And, and another way that I use drafts is, um, you know, if I have an idea or, or someone is talking to me about something that they'd like to talk, discuss at the next faculty meeting, you know, we have weekly faculty meetings. Um, I use the append to Dropbox uh, action to add items to an agenda really quickly. And then when I'm writing the agenda before I give it to the teachers, I can refer back to that text file in Dropbox, see what it is that I've written down throughout the week. Uh, to talk about and it's all right there i can put that into the agenda send it out to everybody before the meeting so it, it's just really powerful it's just such an easy way you know i don't have a million scraps of paper on my desk and it's such an easy way to just get things into a text file and as long as i remember to refer to it later uh, it's going to make things pretty efficient yeah now, definitely it, it sounds like you do a lot of your work with just text files and um and Dropbox, is that fair? I mean, I, I tend to use a lot of my stuff with, with Evernote, for example, but are you primarily text files and use Dropbox as your syncing method or do you use other things as well? I, I use both. I also use Evernote. I, I kind of look at them a little bit differently. I try to kind of compartmentalize things a little bit. So I'm using drafts, uh, or I'm sorry, I'm using Dropbox and text files as sort of working files, as in files that I am frequently editing or changing or, you know, things that I'm working on at the time. And then I use Evernote for uh, clipping reference items from the web, um, journal articles if I'm doing a paper because I'm in grad school as well, uh, and and other inf- notes from class and things like that. So I, I kind of look at Evernote as being sort of my reference, you know, it, Evernote is going to replace all the notebooks that I used to take notes in when I was in class as an undergraduate. So that's, I kind of see the the text files as being working files and then Evernote as being uh, reference. I might not refer to it very often, but I know that it's there. All right. It's Dave, more archival in a lot of ways. Well, David's right. going to yell at me because we're going to, we're going to go long, but I can't let you leave without telling me a little bit about how you're using Evernote to take notes um, for your grad program. Cause I'm in the middle of doing that right now. And, and, you know, David just said Evernote is more, more archival, but what I think I heard you just say is no, you're using Evernote actively for, for daily note taking. Um, for, for classes. Yes. When I, when I'm in class, I have, I have class once a week and, and I, and those are things that I, once I've created the note, you know, from class, it's, it's something that I want. I don't know whose side I should be on here, <laughs> but, um, you know, these are files. There's that no might, side really, yeah, honestly, <laughs> I, I might not use what works. Yeah. I might not touch the note, the, the notes that I take in class in Evernote every day, but they are things that maybe, you know, at the end of the semester, if I'm writing a final paper, I might need to refer back to those. And that's where I find Evernote to be good for that because, uh, it's all searchable. 
you know, I, I can timestamp stuff, you know, when I'm in class and I can go back and look by date, by topic. And that's just really powerful. And so are these just, just text notes that you're taking directly within the Evernote application? Or are you taking these notes somewhere else and then dropping them in Evernote? I, I typically just have Evernote open. Uh, if I have my iPad with me in, in class, which is usually what I'm using, I'll just have Evernote open and I'll take the notes in there. But the other thing that I do with, with Evernote um, is that I, I link notes together. Uh, so if I'm, you know, I'm reading something in a textbook, for example, and uh, there's some big diagram about, you know, some sort of theory, you know, that's fairly well known. What I'll sometimes do is I'll just Google that particular theory and look for an image and I'll just clip that into Evernote. So I have an image that is a representation of what I've just read, uh, you know, if it's something that already exists. So I'll put that in Evernote. And then when I'm taking notes as I'm reading, I will then uh, Evernote has a feature where you can basically link notes together. So I can create a hyperlink within a note in Evernote that links to a different note. So uh, I don't know if I explained that very well, but basically, I, I, you know, I can clip things off the web and then as I'm taking notes, I can link them back to a different Evernote note, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, it's kind of like a, um, you know, it's like one of these nested ideas, but it, they're, it's, it's a one layer nest. You can have a, a, like a source note where you have links to additional notes within that notebook. Right. Actually, and, you can link to any, anywhere on your Evernote database. Right, right. And that's, I mean, that's essentially what I'm doing. And, and this is why, you know, I, you guys had talked about the study that showed that writing down notes in class was more effective and uh, which very well could be true, but you don't have some of these advanced abilities that technology gives us, you know, the ability to link two notes together. You know, if you're just writing down notes in a notebook, I mean, you can reference them, but, you know, there's just more that you can do when you're using technology. And so that's why I kind of, I wouldn't say I take issue with that study because I think it's a valid study, but it does ignore the additional things that we can do with technology uh, to help us learn and to help students learn. Uh, it, it doesn't take into account some of those sort of advanced kind of things that, um, you know, your listeners might be doing. Yeah, I, I know in my case, uh, I've been using technology even back. <laughs> I, I used to have a Tandy WP1, I think it was called. It was a little keyboard with eight-line LED display. And it just took text and it ran on batteries. And when I was in law school, um, th there were laptops back then. I'm not that old, but they were very expensive. But I had this like $200 little Tandy. It was essentially a keyboard with, like I said, it, it held text files and eight lines of LED. And I... I made outlines in it while the teacher talked and I found it extremely effective and I did pretty well in law school. So I, I think that study, while it may be valid, um, I don't think it's true for everyone. Right. I agree. Cause and, if you saw my handwritten notes, it wouldn't have, it, I wouldn't have had the information that well. Right. And, and all kids learn differently. Um, you know, when we're talking about students, that's something that we always have to keep in mind and, and some are going to be more apt to use, technology in the way that I just described than others. And, you know, all the kids at, or the middle school kids at my school starting this week are all going to have an iPad. And, you know, I'm not going to say you have to take notes on an iPad if, you know, a paper pencil format works, works better for the particular student. You know, it's really students having options presented to them and then being able to determine for themselves, maybe with the help of a teacher, uh, what the best way for them to, to, 
to learn and to master the content that we're trying to teach. And for every kid, that's going to be different. And so this, you know, this is just what works for me, what I just described. You should reach out to Fraser Spears. I mean, he's been doing that for several years and I'm sure he would have some good ideas for you. Yeah. We, Fraser and I actually had a kind of a back and forth on, on, uh, Twitter a couple of weeks ago, he, he uses the same mobile device management system as we do at my school and we're just getting started, but he's been using it for years. Uh, so he's been very helpful to me as we've uh, gotten this. Kitty, do you remember, do you remember the name of Fraser's, um, and Brad, Bradley's, um, back to school, Kanye? back to school. Yeah. Yep. That's a yep. good one for, for educators. And then Keegan in the chat room was saying, you know, the, maybe the problem with that study is they were, they weren't grad students. They were, you know, kids and, you know, they may have been playing, you know, Minecraft instead of paying attention to class. With the That's very possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Out of school. Not back out to of school. school. Out of yep. school. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. They, okay. that, their podcast well, is, is great. I, I would highly recommend that as well. So, so Mike, how did you guys end up with iPads when it seems like so many schools are going to Chromebooks? Yeah, that's a good question. We, uh, we, we actually considered both, um, and I, we actually, uh, another teacher and myself actually visited uh, a school that was doing an, a one-to-one iPad initiative and then a school that was, uh, was using Chromebooks. And I mean, we, we, we consulted with teachers, uh, and then we actually consulted with students. We had sort of a little focus group of students that we talked to as we were trying to make this uh, decision last year. And really what it came down to is that, uh, Chromebooks I, th- I think are great. Uh, but Honestly, what it came down to is that the iPad has such a great camera. And when, when we're looking at learning and, and how students learn best, ideally, we want them actually creating things. Uh, if you look at the, you know, the, the hierarchy of learning, you know, there's like rote memorization that's kind of down at the bottom. But when it comes to the research shows that the best way for students to learn material is to actually work with it kind of in a hands on way and actually create things. And so we have a lot of uh, things going on at, at our school in the middle school where kids are making uh, they're going to be making music this year. Uh, they might be making a skit uh, and recording it with video. Uh, they might be drawing something or, or whatever. And when we looked at the Chromebook, uh, it, it seemed like it would be a little bit difficult to do that because, uh, you know, you don't have very, I don't want to misspeak here because I'm not super familiar with Chromebooks, but the tools that you have on an iPad for editing music or, or video or photos are more powerful in my opinion than they were for the Chromebook and the camera itself on most of the Chromebooks these days is inferior to the, the cameras that are on the uh, iPads, uh, especially the iPad air, which is what we got. So it really, honestly, that's mostly what it came down to. Uh, there are things that Chromebooks are, are better with, I think than, than iPads, you know, it's, it's nice. I think for students to have an actual physical keyboard in some cases, but, uh, you know, we weighed the pros and cons and, um, we chose the iPads in the end, primarily because the kids can create more material and content uh, with an iPad than the Chromebook. That was our conclusion. I think we're going to have to have Mike back on a live show in a year, or maybe even just a workflow show to tell us how that went. I'm, I know. I'm, really I'm curious, curious too. I, I know that it's popular to say the iPad is, is a temporary thing. I know lately that's kind of been one of the things on the internet, but I really feel that touch interface is the future. And I think that kids working with it now makes a lot of sense math to me another you know chip in favor of the the ipad yeah i mean i don't think with with the number of them that are around now i don't think they're going to be going away anytime soon 
and uh, you know they they get better and better every year, and it's just it's just incredible. I mean, at Fraser's, I think school, for example, I believe they were using either the iPad one or the iPad two for three or four years, and uh, we have brand new iPad Airs with 32 gigs of storage on each one of them. And uh, I think we, we should easily be able to get three years out of them. And then after three years, you know, who knows what'll be out. Maybe all the kids will be wearing that iWatch or whatever, whatever is coming next week. Yeah. And, and some of the people in the chat room um, are saying, well, you know, one of the big deals with the Chromebook is the price. And a lot of schools, they just stop right there because if they can save a hundred or $200 a unit and they have to buy a thousand of them, um, obviously that's a lot of money. Yeah, it is. And and that's certainly something to consider as well. Um, you know, if you, the 32 gigabyte iPad that we, that we got for each kid, I mean, is what is it? I think 600 bucks. So, um, it's not chump change, but it depends on the school that you're in as well. You know, I, I'm the principal of a smaller private school. So the, the families are paying tuition. It's not terribly expensive, but, uh, I, I have less of a, uh, you know, tax issue to worry about with public school yeah. budgets and things like that. So that was something in our favor as well. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about this in the future, Mike. So we'll probably talk to you again. And I wanted to just thank you for all the, you've been sending in feedback to us for a long time and, um, and you've got your own website and I, everybody I encourage everybody to go out and see it. Mike's really one of the great guys of the internet and, uh, and thanks for everything you've done. Hey, I'm, I'm glad to be on the show. And I, if I just could just correct the, the web address, it's uh, instead of advance, yeah. it's actually advance as in education. So it's E D uh, T E C H E D V A N C E. So that yeah. one, you know, when I, will get you something when I said, <laughs> I, you know, when I said that at the beginning, I thought I had that wrong. I'm really sorry about that. No, that's yeah, that's tech fine. Advance. Yeah. I think sometimes people think my like name education. is Ed or something. Yeah. Right. That's kind of what I was going yeah. for, but you know, it gets missed sometimes, but no big deal. And you know what, David Hayes, a lot smarter than you. She'll, she'll get the link right in the show notes. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, well anyway, Brian, it was really great having you on the show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for joining us, Mike. We really appreciate it. And, and let's do this again sometime. Talk about how that iPad deployment went. That sounds great. I'd love that. All right. Thanks so much. Well, we have got a ton of feedback from our task management show. Um, people had a lot of great tips and a few opinions on the subject, as you might imagine. And so uh, I, I think we can dig in and, and chat about that a little bit. But before we do, I want to take a quick break and talk about our first sponsor for this episode. And that is our good friends over at Squarespace. So, you know, that David and I have been uh, longtime users of Squarespace. We both host our blogs there. Uh, David's over at MaxSparky.com, and I'm over at KatieFloyd.me. And one of the reasons that I host my blog over at Squarespace is because I don't want to have to support my blog. I want to be able to write, post what I want to write on Squarespace, and be done with it. I don't want to have to know about database administration. I don't want to have to know what version of SQL Server that I'm working on or whether I even need to have an SQL server or any of those other things. I just don't want to have to worry about it. And Squarespace takes care of all of it. It is simple and easy to set up a website. They have beautifully designed, professionally designed templates, I might add, that will get you started, but you can completely customize them to your heart's content. Uh, it's literally as easy as dragging and dropping content to get it into your website uh, and just pushing a few buttons and pulling a few levers here and there and sliding a few sliders will dramatically change the look of your website so that it doesn't look like a cookie cutter website and not that any of the Squarespace websites do, but so that you can completely customize the website for your look and feel and for 
for whatever you're trying to go for. But if you need a little extra help, they'll give it to you. They've got 24-7 support through their live chat and email, and they've got support techs located throughout the world, currently in New York City, in Dublin, and in Portland. And man, are they fast in getting back to you when you have a comment or a suggestion or just need help at working something out. Their plan start as little as $8 a month, and they include a free domain name if you sign up for a year so you can get it all in one. And one of my favorite features of the Squarespace uh, system is that you don't have to design or even know how to design multiple sites for different formats. You know, there's all of these rumors, and by the time most of you hear this podcast, we'll know whether they're true or not, that we're going to get, um, you know, an I, a different size iPhone and all of these other things. Squarespace has got responsive design, which means that website is going to look good regardless on what size screen you do it, whether it's a full-size computer screen, whether it's on an iPad screen, or whether it's on an iPhone screen, whether it be 4.7 or 5.5 or whatever those sizes may ultimately end up being. Squarespace has got you covered. Uh, And if you want to get into commerce or an online store or even just take donations on your site, every Squarespace site comes with an online store that you can set up. So you can start your free trial with no credit card required and start building your own website today. Uh, It's a weekend right now, so no better time than now. And back by popular demand, because I think this has been our most popular coupon code, far more popular than any of those wacky Star Wars codes that we have previously had, David. Uh, If you use the offer code... you're just rubbing it in. I know. If you use the offer code, shut up, Wesley, you can get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for Mac Power users. I think that code is popular because it works for both Star Trek and Star Wars fans because everybody just wants Wesley to shut up sometimes. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think know. Maybe, maybe there should be a website, a Squarespace website about <laughs> shut, having Wesley shut up. I'm, I'm sure there is. Um, so thank you to Squarespace for their support of Mac Power users. And be sure that if you go sign up, uh, you use that coupon code SHUTUPWESLEY to get 10% off your purchase. Uh, and check them out at squarespace.com. Yeah. Thank you, Squarespace. Uh, so the task management show did get a lot of feedback. And in fact, we got more than we could we could fit in the show. And you know, a tip on that, if you want to get your feedback on our show, sending us an audio comment usually puts you at the top of the list. Yeah, it's, it's almost a lock. And people get tired of listening to us. So we got to put these audio comments on. But anyway, um, uh, Tony wrote in to uh, to talk about Katie's physical inbox. You want to talk about a, that? A lot of people wrote in about this. And so I want to say thank you. But they all kind of mirrored this, this same advice that Tony gave. But he said, in the GTD practice, the best thing to do is to have a physical inbox in which you empty on a regular basis. And you should never mix actionable items with reference items. And I think that's my problem. And think about this as a physical manifestation of the OmniFocus slash Evernote split. Everything I want to do goes into OmniFocus, but there will often be a link to that task back to an Evernote note that has the information that I need to complete it. Two inboxes may be a good way to sort this out, providing that you can easily fit all of the reference material into the inbox with the, well, I think what he means is the reference inbox without it becoming a quote unquote stack. The difference may seem small, but the psychic payoff when you actually manage to purge the physical as well as the virtual inbox is huge. And I think that is my problem is that I did not have a dedicated, yes, I've processed this. I just haven't done it yet. Space on my, on my desk or in my office for these types of things. So instead they just sat in the inbox. So what do you, what, what's your solution? What are you doing? 
my my temporary solution, um, and I don't know if this is going to be the permanent solution, is I've just gotten another basket and I physically put it somewhere else in my office. I, you know, uh, it's kind of a, a standing folder type basket combo system where when I know that these are kind of in my queue of things to do, um, they go over here. And then only my inbox sitting on the corner of my desk is for processing things, whereas that different stack of stuff um, is is over to the side and not physically on the front of my desk. Yeah, you know, in my office, the the staff have learned to send me most things as email attachments. Most pieces of paper that come in for me are scanned upon receipt, and so I've got you know folders and you know pieces of of the file system at work where I hold pending work like this, or or they have a, a proper place, and then I just have a task in OmniFocus, and I know that the stuff is in its proper place, so I can go get it whenever I need it. Um, I've also on occasion, Katie Floyd used Evernote to store little bits that I may need later. If it's something that's a big project I'm in the middle of. So that, you know, there's, there's a variety of ways to do that, but I agree with all the listeners, just putting the stuff in an inbox and just leaving it there will make you crazy. I mean, the whole idea is to get that thing empty and not have to look at that stuff until you need it again. Um, Robin wrote in and, and this is another one. We had, uh, several questions along this vein, and uh, Robin's question was about continuing tasks like uh, uh, Robin. I don't know uh, if, if Robin is a he or a she. I'm going to say he or she. Okay. Anyway, uh, Robin said he wants to read chapter eight from a textbook. And um, and so he says, what do I do? Because that's going to take me several days to pull off. And I what am I going to do in OmniFocus? Well, you know, that crazy thing I do about moving defer dates is exactly how I handle this problem. Because for instance, I'm, I'm constantly writing the next field guide and I've got, when I start the the book, I have a series, once I have the outline ready and I have things going, I make some, some tasks in OmniFocus and, you know, I don't start writing one chapter until I finish the next one. So I, I've got these things lined up in OmniFocus and I don't want to look at them all the time. But for instance, yesterday was Friday morning and I looked at it and the next chapter is up for me to start writing on it. Uh, I'm not going to do it at work, but I knew I was going to do it today after we finish the show. So today at 12 o'clock, um, that's going to show up on my OmniFocus. So using the deferred date is a good way, I think, to handle those types of problems. Um, so if in Robin's case, at reading chapter eight, I'd say, well, if you're sitting at school or work and you know you're not going to read chapter eight right now, but this afternoon, you're going to be doing study time. Just put a defer time to 4 p.m. And then you can then it'll show up when you need to see it. But I um, think what what Robin is saying is that they're not going to read chapter eight in one sitting. I mean, it. I don't I understand. Okay. So so let's say four o'clock comes around and you say, I'll read chapter eight and you read half of it. And then once you're done, I would just defer that again to the next time you're going to have time to read it. I do the same thing when I write the chapters. I'm not going to finish what I'm writing this afternoon, but it's going to show up and tell me, remind me, hey, you should be working on this now and I'll work on it. When I'm done, I'll defer it maybe till Monday night. Are we recording a show Monday night? I don't remember now. <laughs> mm, I don't remember. But, no. but anyway, that's, you know, that, that's how I no. handle it. Tuesday night. We're recording. David, what happens Tuesday? We're recording a show, Katie Floyd. That's right. Um. So the... um. So I, and, and the, the alternative method would be to break it up into pieces, you know, read chapter 8.1 and read chapter 8.2. And I think at some point you make yourself crazy because you're adding all of these tasks. Um, if it's something that's easy to just defer and keep as one task, 
that's how I would handle it. I'm sure I'll hear from people that have a different opinion on it, but, but that that's how I go about it. Uh, a related comment was from Catherine. Uh, I'd made the comment in the show that these, the way I do these defer dates. Um, in fact, I heard that. I think that was the biggest amount of feedback I got personally. Uh, people telling me that I was completely nuts and people telling me that that was a good idea. And if you think it's nuts, I'd encourage you to just try it at least. Uh, but Catherine said, Hey, you know, when you say fiddling to her, that meant um, messing around with the fonts and the background colors. And she says, what you're doing is good task management. So thank you, Catherine, for um, making me feel better about myself because I need that. Yeah. I I tend to not put, and I haven't used Evernote, I'm sorry, I haven't used OmniFocus much for my weekly school assignments. And I probably, I've, I've used it for assignments that aren't weekly, I have to do this every week type assignments. Um, I've used them for longer term assignments or assignments that are more awkward. But the the way that my my program seems to be working is, there's no set syllabus in that, you know, week one, we're going to read chapter one, week two, we're going to read chapter two, week three, we may read, oh, we're going to jump to chapter six, week three. But what we do for the next class depends largely on how far we got the previous class before that. Uh, so there would be no point. I mean, if I knew for sure, regardless, we were going to do this task on this day and this task on this day, then I probably would have pre-entered all those tasks in OmniFocus. But instead, I know, well, this is how far we got, and this is where we're likely to get in the next class. So I just, I don't know. I, I feel like I, it doesn't make sense for me to put that type of stuff in OmniFocus because it would constantly be changing. And I would, all, it, you know, it would, it would never match what it was originally entered as. I think it's, I think it's a, it's kind of a judgment call. Um, sometimes it makes more sense if it's a big project just to do the project. I think sometimes if it's something that you're at risk of forgetting about, then you need to put it in OmniFocus. Yeah. Uh, we had a lot of questions about deferring tasks. Um, Roberto wrote in and asked you specifically that he's not been able to trust OmniFocus about deferring tasks because once the start day passes, he's no longer able to see those tasks in forecast mode. And I live in forecast mode. I love the forecast view in the new OmniFocus version too. But and he needs to make sure that he has another perspective that he can see it. And granted, you can do that in a number of other ways. But if you're living in forecast mode, how do you deal with it? Um, well, this was one we received from several people. And you can select multiple dates in forecast mode. So, And just to back up a little bit, there's a setting in forecast mode where you can have it not only show items that are due on a particular date, but items that start on that date or defer to that date. And that is golden in forecast mode because I can look at next Thursday and see all the items I have queued up for that day and know if I have time, you know, to go to Laguna with my daughter. So it's, um, it's really useful. But the, the problem that he has is let's say that he gets to tomorrow and there was a, well, this is one problem he probably has. He had things that were deferred to today and he gets to tomorrow uh, and he goes in forecast mode, he's only going to see the items that were set to start tomorrow. And the stuff that was supposed to happen today and didn't get finished is not going to show up or, you know, and so he's not getting everything that's available. And that's just kind of the way forecast mode is engineered. Uh, there's a couple ways around it. Number one is if you're, you know, and this I know is tedious, but if you get, if you close out your day, which I often do, I won't say I do it every day, but most days I close out the day. So when I get to the end of the day, I'll see what's left on my list that that didn't get done. And a lot of things don't get automatically pushed to tomorrow. A lot of things, because I have kind of this two universe world, a lot of the Max Sparky stuff usually gets pushed to the weekend. 
and a lot of the work stuff may get pushed to the next day, or maybe it's something that gets pushed out a couple of weeks. You just, who, who knows? Um, uh, if you do that at the end of the day, then the forecast mode is going to work better for you because the stuff that truly is to tomorrow is going to be tomorrow. Another way to do this is I don't think you need to live in forecast mode. I, forecast mode is a great tool, but that's not, it's, it's a very limited way to use OmniFocus. Um, you know, they have these things called perspectives and even the built-in ones, if you don't buy the pro version are pretty good, but I've got a couple on that on that post we linked in the last show. Uh, and the two that I really think are appropriate for this is the one called today, which shows everything that's available today, no matter when it had the start date. And that lets you see everything and it's organized by project. So it allows you to quickly work through. And there's another one called clear. And for those days and clear just shows you all the tasks available without reference to project. So when I have one of those days where I don't, kind of finish up the day properly and I show up the next day and I know I've got a bunch of tasks from the last couple of days. Like when I get really busy, I'll open up the clear perspective and then I just hit command a to select all. And then I'll, I'll set the defer date to, to today in the right column. And on the Mac, this, this takes about, you know, 15 seconds and then everything is properly today. That's a little bit of a hack. Yeah. Um, moving out of OmniFocus for a little while, we got an email from Thomas who talks about how he uses OneNote for task management. And OneNote is a Microsoft product. It's a, it's a bit of a competitor to Evernote. And a lot of people like OneNote. It's, it's available, I think, for free in the Mac App Store. And Thomas says that his work requires that he keeps tight control over anything work-related so that he has to keep certain projects isolated from each other and that almost all of his work material has to be isolated from any of his personal uh, machines. And his solution is to use OneNote for both notes and tasks management. And some project notebooks are kept in secure shares that he has to use two-factor authentication for, depending on how secure those files need to be, and kept in his OneDrive for Business account, which would be his work account. And then he has some notebooks that are kept in his personal OneDrive account uh, for things that can be shared between home and work. And then finally, he has some private notebooks on uh, a private OneDrive account, which his work machines cannot access. And so he organizes one project per notebook, uh, one sub-project per tab, and one major task per page. And he generally puts one outlooked flag task per page, and then we'll add lots of details and subtasks. So he uses that as like a project and checkboxes uh, for notes on the same page. And at work, this is all on the PC, but the same system also transfers to the Mac since the application is available both places. And each notebook becomes a separate file that he can keep personally or share with his wife or share online or share on coworkers, depending on how that works. So not being very familiar with OneNote, you know, I, I understand structurally how this works and that can be very advantageous. I, I really need to check out OneNote because... It seems to be even people who don't like Microsoft products tend to like OneNote. I, I would argue that OneNote might very well be the best thing Microsoft ever made. And uh, going back, you know, historically, OneNote first showed up when Microsoft had their initial tablet initiative. You know, long before there was an iPad, Microsoft and Bill Gates were really solidly behind tablets. And I think part of the reason it didn't really take off was the technology wasn't there quite yet. I mean, it, I, I had one at one point and that, you know, it had all the problems of a traditional PC. It was slow to boot up and it was heavy and it was hot and it just wasn't there yet. It wasn't nearly as sleek as the, as even the iPad one. Um, but 
another problem they had was they were trying to put windows on it. So you had these tiny touch targets and it's like nobody really thought, well, hey, this is a different computing platform. And even to this day, really, Microsoft is trying to argue that they shouldn't have to have a separate operating system. But OneNote was the exception. It was an app that was really built around the idea of a notebook computer or a tablet computer, I guess I should say. And and they really did a great job. And even back then, I thought it was a fantastic product. And, you know, the new Microsoft now is trying to, to stretch its wings with its software to different platforms. I think we have a lot of listeners who have like a PC at work and a Mac at home, and they're looking for ways to easily integrate data. And up until recently, the best solution was probably Evernote because it was cloud-based and it, you know, and it allowed, it was multi-platform, blah, blah, blah. Uh, OneNote really is a legitimate solution. And if you're working in a business that's really a Microsoft shop and it's got all these Microsoft technologies, it's probably, it probably should be the first considered choice. We have been using Office 365 for our uh, email, as I think you have been too. And that's actually been working really well. And I, I think our office is looking at expanding to doing uh, total Office 365 integration in the next year or so. So we may be looking hard at OneNote in the future. Yeah. It's, it's a nice product. Um I probably ordered these wrong, but I guess we'll hop back to OmniFocus for just a minute. Um, Stephen wanted to talk to us about a unique use of single action list. He says, in addition to quote unquote real projects, I have at least one single action list per client. So the total number of projects I have in OmniFocus is pretty large. And about two months ago, I adjusted the review interval on all of my projects to something that was a bit more appropriate than once a week, say six week for each of the single action lists and one to four weeks for everything else. He says he also hacked up an Apple script to um, splay the review dates randomly over the review period. So now he reviews projects every day and there's usually only three to five on any given day. So it takes him about two to five minutes. And that's a great idea. And I actually wrote Stephen and said, would you care to share? Have you written this Apple script up? Because I tend to review things. I have my review dates set on, on Friday. Friday is just when I do these things. And not everything is set to review every week. I, I usually, some urgent things are every week. Some things are every two weeks. Some things are every four weeks. I mean, we've talked about that before. But I kind of like this idea of getting in the habit of reviewing a few things every day. Yeah, you know, that's exactly how it I do it too. Uh, in fact, Stephen and I are on the same page in a lot of ways. I have uh, at the day job, I have, you know, part of my job is I represent a lot of small companies and, and I, I'm kind of their, you know, like the Robert De Niro character and the Godfather, like, well, you know, something goes wrong, you know, a if a horse head shows up in somebody's bed, they'll probably call me. And, and I don't, a lot of these people don't have active litigation, but I'm just kind of their, their counselor. And so I have these projects, like it'll be, you know, the ABC Corp, the Acme Corporation. And I'll just have a single action list for each client or each company. When a little something comes up, I just drop it in there. I don't make a new project for each one in OmniFocus. And, and like Stephen, I have those spread out in very long intervals for it. And uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote a post at Max Barkey about how I had switched over to doing review every day. And I didn't need an Apple script for this because just by the nature of, you know, the day-to-day -day regime, it, everything is now spread all over the place, my, my review period. So every day I see anywhere from three to like five or six 
show up. And I would, I would really recommend this because when you only have to review to three to five, you're going to do a much better job reviewing them. If you have to review like 20, you're going to do a really good job on the first couple. And by the time you get to number 10, you know, you're, you're mailing it in. So um, the idea of reviewing a couple every, you know, just a, a few items every day, but reviewing them really well is going to serve you. Um, and then the last bit of feedback I think we have about task uh, management is using reminders. Uh, David, you and I talked about kind of what tasks go in your heavy duty task management app, whether that be OmniFocus or Things or some other task management app. In what what items are more list types items? And you and I talked about, you know, um, shopping lists tend to be reminders types items. And Chris wrote in with another idea for these list types items. And he said, one insight in particular that I received from your task management show um, is that I tend to accumulate names of books, movies, software, and other stuff that people recommend or simply run across that I want to read, watch, or investigate further. However, I've always felt that these things are a bit of an awkward fit for my task management system instead of having a, oh, I should check these out sometimes list tends to be somewhat cumbersome. And so um, what he has done is he has created a list and reminders for these types of things. And he says the best part is you can also use Siri to add to the to check out list. And it makes it very easy to add these types of things. I think that's a good use of it. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I do. I, I wrote an article about this for Macworld because uh, I'd gone through, there's a lot of like list managers out there, but at the end of the day, Reminders does the job for me. And with the ability to say, you know, Siri, you know, add, you know, add Harry Potter to my books list. And then it just adds it to your list that that's really great. Cause a lot of times I come up with these ideas when I'm like walking down a street, listening to a podcast and somebody says a book that I may want to read. Or when I'm standing in front of the refrigerator and realize that I'm all out of spicy carrots. So uh, using Siri to, to capture that stuff and reminders is great. And the other nice thing, I thought we talked about this on the show, but maybe I'm, I'm just, you know, spacing here, but uh, you can share those lists. So if you've got multiple family members, you can share a, a grocery list or a book list or whatever. And that's very convenient. Yeah. All right. Well, um, maybe it's time to move on to presentations. Yeah. W- but let's before do that. we do, do you want to take yeah. a quick break? Yeah, I would like to talk about um, the Omni Group, and they've been a longtime sponsor of our show, and it's a group of really smart people that make really great productivity software. And one of the applications that they make that I use frequently to my benefit is OmniGraffle. And OmniGraffle is a diagram building tool, but but so much more. Um, uh, they came out recently with OmniGraffle 6, and they've added some great new features. I mean, the interface is really modern now, and they've got new icons um, but you know, the, the, the big point of this application is when you want to present some visual information, there's a, you know, there's a disconnect between the point you realize that this is going to look a lot better as a visual diagram than a bunch of words on the screen and then getting that actually built. And traditionally that was something that you had to call somebody and pay somebody to do for you, or you had to set aside many hours to try and make it work yourself. And yeah, I've tried them all over the years. I I've tried to build diagrams in Microsoft word and, you know, and I've, I've tried to do it in Photoshop and some of these other applications where 
you need, they're either not made for the task or they're just really, really difficult to make the task happen easily unless you're do nothing but work in that application. OmniGraffle solves this problem. It's an application that's, that anybody can use, but it's yet very powerful. And it allows you to make diagrams very quickly. Like one of the features they have, like if you want to show hierarchical information, let's say you just want to put like a corporate um, flow, you know, spreadsheet or a flow chart up showing you who's in charge of who. You can actually, OmniGraffle has a function where you can actually write that as a hierarchical outline in the column and it, it displays it as visual data for you automatically. So you're not doing anything but just typing in the words and OmniGraffle does the word with the work for you. Uh, you know, that's just an example of what you can do with this application. It's very powerful. They've got these stencils so you can take, you know, pre-built graphic objects and just drop them on the screen. You can write in them. You can change their colors. You can attach them. You can even sync the stuff using the Omni Group's omnipresent service so you can have them simultaneously show up on your iMac and I'm sorry, on your Mac and your iPad. Uh, it's just a really uh, fascinating application that I've used many times over the years. You know, my day job as a lawyer and also at the Mac Sparky stuff. If you look at the email field guide, a bunch of the graphics in that field guide were built right in OmniGraffle because that that's the best tool for the job. Um, it's it's got that difficult triad solved. It's powerful, it's simple, and it's deep. So how I use it is I diagram everything. Relationships of people, relationships of companies, transactions. I trace money with it. I diagram objects. And they always look really good. Um, uh, you can get it from the omnigroup.com slash omnigraffle. And they've got versions available both for the Mac and the iPad. Uh, they've got a pro version and a standard version. If you look there, they've got a bunch of explanations of what the differences are, and you can check it out. They've got a two-week trial for you, so if you want to just download and kick the tires, you can do it. I recommend getting it directly from Omni. Um, I, I did that with the prior version. I didn't get it from the App Store. And when they came out with version 6, uh, they had upgrade pricing. I just bought the upgrade, and everything was great. Um, Omni Group is one of those companies that does offer money back if you buy an I, iOS app and you don't like it, so you can... You can try it out that way. But if you go to the website, they're going to have some great screenshots and you're going to find out how much you love it. Uh, I use it all the time. People always think that I'm paying people for my graphics. And the fact is I'm making them in very little time in OmniGraffle. So go check it out. If you want to have better graphics in your life, that's the place to go. Thank you, Omni Group, for supporting the show. So, David, you put out the call a couple of episodes ago um, for tips on presentations, and you got quite a response. Yeah, I did. And um, it was fun. I got to give away some books to some listeners and everybody. had there, there was, frankly, more there were more feedback than I could even include in this outline. Um, the uh, the best feedback I got, though, by far was I've been hearing from people saying, hey, I got the book and I just gave a presentation and my boss said it was like the best one I've ever given or people were really connecting with me and exactly the kinds of things I want you to get out of this book people are getting and that that feels really great. And thank you, everyone, for taking the time to send those emails because that just makes my day every time I read that. Um, but we did hear some uh, starting with speaking of audio comments. Jeremy sent an audio comment in about how to stop. Hello, David and Katie Floyd. Jeremy in the north of England here again. At the risk of taking obsequiousness to new unplumbed debts, I have to report that I've just finished a truly excellent presentations ebook, and I'm making it required study in our small PR company over here. 
However, I would like to make one suggestion and one addition. You advised David uh, quite rightly that writing and rehearsing word for word the opening of a presentation is indeed excellent advice. But I also find that it's useful to do the same thing for the ending. Many people just don't know when or indeed how to stop. And they end up when they realise that there are no more slides, saying something rather lame like, and so that's it. The ending should ideally, I think, contain a brief summary and a call to action. What do we actually want to happen as a result of this presentation? It might also contain a polite thanks for not walking out, falling asleep or heckling, and of course, an invitation to ask questions. So that's my two penneth for free. You know, I don't know how anyone in the UK can actually listen to me talk. <laughs> Cuz Jeremy is so classy. I mean, I I don't know what to say. But he's right. Uh you want to have the closing nailed just as much as the opening. I I think that's the two big big pieces. And um in the book I did talk about memorizing a closing too, but I said the most important I, I always feel is the opening because boy, if you screw up at the beginning, you're lost. You'll, you'll just never get to the closing, but, but Jeremy's absolutely right. And thanks for the audio comment, Jeremy, keep them coming. Um, Mark wrote in about an iPhone remote. He kind of combined two shows. We had a show recently about what to do with old gear. And he says, why not put an old iPhone in your bag and keep it as an emergency remote? Because the, uh, you know, the keynote these days, the remote function is built in. It used to be a separate app. Now it's built in. You can remotely advance slides on your other devices with your phone. And it's actually pretty good. Uh, my big gripe against those types of remotes has always been that you have to look down. But the way they do it, you, you probably don't have to look down. And and uh, if you just keep your thumb in the right area of the screen. Uh, but it is also nice using those remotes with the iOS devices because you can use a laser on the screen. Uh, recently, I did a presentation, and for giggles, I decided to to drop my usual remote instead use an iPad Mini, and it was it came off really nice. I had everything set up wireless, you know, with an with an Apple TV and a little Airport Express, so they were on the same network. I had a nice connection, and I was able to use the laser function right on the screen, which I thought was kind of nice. Um, I'm not sure I'm ready to give up my my mechanical remote yet, but. But there's some things going on that are pretty interesting here. Well, and so it's a lot heavier to carry around too. I mean, I know iPhones and iPads are so light now, but it's it's a lot more to carry around than that that little handheld remote that you're used to. Yeah, it is. Um, Jim wrote in with some really good tips about using suspense, and um, you know, I thought that was kind of interesting. He like the he's a uh, I believe a music teacher because he talked a lot about that and. Um, and one of the things he does is he'll, you know, if there's something, a solution for uh, extra credit, he said that like name that tune exercise, he won't give the result until the last five seconds before class is dismissed, which is kind of evil, but I have to appreciate it. Yeah. I also, um, Alan wrote in and gave us a tip to look at the audience eyebrows when you're presenting. He says, that's the best way that you can read the audience. For example, if someone in the audience has their eyebrows raised, they're probably feeling skeptical, which means you need to elaborate further or give them some way to convince them of what you're actually talking about. 
And he says his other tip is that when you lose the audience attention, if they aren't paying attention for you, just stop talking for a few minutes. And then because the silence from a presenter is so rare that they're going to pay attention for you. And that was actually another uh, tip that Jim gave as well is try to be mindful of the ums. And this is something that I have trouble with is just pause. When you have a moment, just pause. And Tim yeah, Cook, think- Tim Cook, I think, does that so well, is he comes across as a very thoughtful speaker and that everything he says, he's really put thought to, but yet he doesn't, it doesn't seem like he doesn't know what he's about to say. And you very rarely hear any ums or uhs or mm from his speech. Very effective. And it's, it's something that I'm really working on. I am. Um- I have a related tip. When one time I was in a trial and there was a juror that was asleep during closing arguments and I was the defendant. My client was the defendant in the case. And so I was watching the juror sleep through the plaintiff because they always go first. And as, as, as we were going through, I was taking notes on my Mac and I just kept pushing it a little bit further. And there was a big, heavy book right behind it. And I was pushing it closer and closer to the edge of the table as I was taking notes. The, the book, not the Mac, right? The book. Because yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, so that's, that's pretty desperate, David. It's like, well, it's like the Mac is pushing the book towards the edge, you know. Okay. And, and then when it was my turn to stand up, I pushed the Mac just back another couple inches and the book went over the back of the table and slammed on the ground. <laughs> and the, uh, the juror woke up and then I stood up and I gave my closing statement. And I thought that was, that was a nice way to get their attention. Drop a book. Yeah. Sounds a little unfair, doesn't it? And I apologized. I actually previewed Rob's tip and gave it credit to, to Jim, I think. But Rob's tip was to try to replace your ums or your uhs or the you knows or whatever with silence. And, and that, that was Rob's tips. I apologize, but it's still, still a great tip. Yeah. Uh, Brian wrote in, and this is a, this is just a great a book, uh, Edward Tufte, who talks about visual explanations. He's kind of the guy for that. And he says, you know, that's a great, if you want to give presentations, read Tufty. And in fact, that would be a great thing to do. If you bought yourself a copy of Omnigraffles, also get a copy of Tufty's book. It's it's the only book I've really read on this subject, but it's just so good. So I'm, I'm sure there's other resources out there, but but it really uh, it, it changed the way I thought about visual data. Sebastian wrote in about pasting photos. Um, uh, he uh, he made a point that I'm sh- I'm not sure a lot of people know. So uh, you know it's easy enough to take an image out of iPhoto and drag it to the desktop. Um, uh, but you can also just drag it right into Keynote. And sometimes you might need a command tab to make that land in there because it doesn't know it's the active application. But that's a that's a great way to put pictures in your Keynote presentation. Another one of Rob's tips, and this may be achieved by using the Do Not Disturb feature, I'm not sure, is to silence your system audio because there's nothing worse when you're giving us a presentation than to be interrupted by bleeps and bloops and alerts and all of those other things. Yeah, I, that's very important. I mean, that's on the checklist in the book. When you, when you sit down, turn off all that stuff. Um, Klaus wrote in to say, you know, make it your own, you know, and, and he had several examples he used. He, uh, he gives presentations to university librarians and, he includes a few pictures of his children and he uses examples when he's trying to talk about metadata and, 
And he says, you know, sometimes colleagues will borrow his slides and then they won't you they won't take out his personal examples and they'll try and use them themselves. And obviously the audience immediately realizes that this person has not really taken the time to prepare a proper presentation. If you're going to use somebody else's slides, you know, go through them and make them your own. And Nick recommends to the extent possible, make your inter- your presentations interactive. Try to engage the audience if it's appropriate for that type of setting by using open-ended questions. Don't portray yourself as a know-it-all. Uh, and make them do some of the work to try to get them to play off of each other and, and redirect questions to the audience. It's helpful. We got, we got a lot of tips on presentations. I think we'll stop there, but I just wanted to thank everyone in the Mac power users community for supporting me on these books. There are a lot of work to make, but I, you know, it's very, it's very nice to, to hear from people that are using them and improving their presentations and, and just all the kind emails I've received from everyone concerning the book. Thank you. If you haven't got it yet, go check it out or tell a friend. Um, so there's some news, Katie, that we had this last week, and we've done quite a few shows on security, but I thought with the recent leak of celebrity naked pictures, we should just kind of do a quick roundup of some thoughts on, you know, how to protect your naked pictures. Okay. I got it down to three steps. Um, well, of course there's one step, just don't take naked pictures of yourself. That's a good, Oh, you're going to get so much, so much email for that, but Okay. (laughs) I yeah, I could say so much, but I won't. Um, but but definitely, uh, regardless, uh, you want to have two factor authentication turned on, and and I know that. Um, I, look, I, I think Apple has some blame with what's happened here uh, on several levels, but I don't want to get into all that. I'm sure there's enough podcasts and articles about it. But uh, regardless, you should have two factor authentication turned on where you can. I mean, I don't know about you, but I use it on Evernote. I use it on Twitter. I use it on Google. I use it on my, on my, um, on my uh, account with Apple, uh, my iCloud account. Uh, but, and it's a little bit of a pain, but you get used to it. And it's really nice knowing that, you know, you own your stuff and it's a lot harder for someone else to break in. Number two is, is the one password. We were at the dinner table with uh, my daughter and some of her friends and, and I honestly did not lead it to this point, but somehow we got on the discussion of passwords and, and I, I, it was just horrifying to hear how they all use the same password and everybody knows everybody else's password. And it's a, they're all words that you can find in the dictionary and come on guys, you got, you got to step that up and then just use common sense with this stuff. Yeah. You, you're not going to say a word, are you? No, no, I'm going to expound on that a little bit. Um, You know, instead of saying don't put naked pictures of yourself online, what I will say is I think we all have to be very aware of how we're using these online services and that the services regardless are going to be compromised. And yes, Apple has a long way to go and they are not blameless in this, even though they say, well, iCloud wasn't wasn't hacked at the core. There wasn't any exploit of our, our database, Apple does share a little blame in this because really Apple needs to expand their two-factor authentication. I don't think two-factor authentication would have necessarily helped in this latest round of hacks. Although that being said, you should turn it on to your iCloud account anyway, because I know Tim Cook has said that Apple plans on expanding how they use two-factor authentication. Um, but I just, and I, just following up on that point, I don't, I don't want to, um, I don't want this to become an ongoing thing on our show, but the, um, as I understand it, as we record the show, the one of the ways that the hackers got this information is they went into 
some portal at Apple and they were able to try account name with many, many passwords. Right. And Apple has since adjusted that so that you so that there's some kind of time limiter on the number of passwords that you can use over and over again. But I think that's a little like fixing the barn door after the horses have already gotten well, out. But well, regardless, they fixed, they, they fixed but, the barn door. So that's yeah. that's good. But um so I think I think we we as users need to be aware and understand the potential consequences of putting the types of data that we're putting on these cloud services. And I think more than anything, we just need to be aware of where our data is going. I think that a lot of people maybe don't understand that when they take a picture that may be a private picture, they may not understand that it's going up to the cloud somewhere. And that that potentially can be compromised. So I think user education of what things are and, and where they're going, or, or even worse yet, you know, if, if you're a kid, you're taking this picture, um, you know, Max Barkey could have it set as his, uh, his screensaver on his Apple TV. It could happen. You know, I yeah. mean, those those things could could be true. Um, certainly having strong passwords. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Turning on two factor authentication. But another big source of this was security questions and answers, because a lot of the information, especially if you're a fairly public figure or a well-known figure, is having your security questions and answers being easily compromised because a lot of that information is publicly available. Um, yeah. So so the way to do that is don't don't answer security questions with, with common answers. I just have one password generate a random string. Like, you know, what was the name of your first dog? And it just generates a big long one. Password four, three, seventeen, nine B. And then once I'm done, I take a screenshot of that and I save it to one password because it'll save an image to that login. And then I've got it there. I guess I could do it as text as well, but I've always just done a screenshot. But be aware, sometimes you have to give those over the phone. So sometimes you want to use that feature in 1Password to make it a, a pronounceable password. Yeah, that'd be a good idea. Yeah. I mean, it just needs to be, you know, gobbledygook. And then the other thing I, I told, you know, the teenagers, I said, look, you know, maybe you want to take some fun pictures once in a while. I was young, too. I get it. Um, don't use the camera app. You know, use something like Camera Plus or one of these apps that has its own film strip that's not connected to your to your major, you know, iCloud account and all these other things. A self-contained uh, film strip might be a, a good idea. Yeah. Um, but speaking of one password, <laughs> as though that was I think not I an just ad, made Katie Floyd blush. I, I, yeah, I was just gonna tell my if if it were my child. <laughs> I, no, we're not we're not taking any fun pictures. So there you go. Yeah. But, well, you know, you might say that, but I know. But uh, educating your child as as to what the potential consequences are of taking fun pictures is is or educating anyone as to what the potential yeah. consequences are of taking fun pictures uh, is important. But. Uh, I say that I'm not a parent yet, so I, 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 I'll leave it at that. I'm not a parent yet, so. All right. But speaking of which, um, this episode is brought to you also by One Password, and what more appropriate? We've we've talked about great uses for One Password um, and why it is so important. As if this were not enough, do not let this be you. You have to take this stuff seriously. You have to use strong, unique passwords for all of your websites. You have to have these these random passwords that aren't easily susceptible to brute force attacks. 
Your password can't be password. It can't be password one. It can't be one, two, three, four. It can't be any of these things because so many of these accounts we've talked about were hacked just by using brute force dictionary attacks and throwing some of the 500 most popular passwords at them. And they opened. Um, You cannot reuse the same password across multiple accounts over and over again, because when a site is compromised and it will be compromised, that potentially puts your data at other sites at risk, because what's the first thing that someone's going to do when they get your password at a particular site? They're going to go see what other doors that key unlocks. So you have to use these unique passwords across multiple platforms. And the way that I do it, the way that David does it, the way that we recommend that you do it uh, is by using one password to manage this stuff for you, because it gives you access to all of these strong, unique passwords. You don't have to remember them. The only thing you have to remember uh, is your one password password. And that will unlock the door and give you access to everything. Uh, in fact, David, we had a, a Mac Power user listener write in, um, giving us a sto- uh, telling us a story about um, how he had some trouble with a brand new Mac that he received and got locked out of this Mac. That the Mac had some issues, and he called up Apple tech support over the phone, and they walked him through how to reset his administrator password. And so he was then concerned about storing certain things in, in Keychain. So I'm not sure if it reset his Keychain password as well, but. I really like having these things separate in my own separate 1Password keychain where I know somebody's not going to get to them. Um, You have this information everywhere. It's going to sync via Dropbox. It's going to sync via iCloud if you prefer to go that route. It's going to be available on your iPhone, on your Mac, on your PC, on your iPad, on your Android device now. Um, And just there's, there's no reason not to have it. The single best thing that you can do is to use a strong, secure unique password. So uh, check it out. It's available for the Mac App Store. Uh, It's available in their own website over at onepassword.com. They've got it available for Mac, for Windows, for iPhone, for iPad, just about any platform you want. Go get it. But most of you probably already have it because you're listening to this. Go get your family members set up on it. Um, Because when something goes wrong, if you're the tech support in your family, they're going to be coming to you for help. And you're probably going to have some of the mess to clean up. So be proactive and and help your family be safe. And thanks to 1Password for their support of the show. We have a lot of great listener tips on random topics. And the list is kind of long. And I know we've, we've already gone long. But I'd like to try and get through as much as we can. Because there's some stuff here that's really worth worth hearing okay let's do it starting with robbie robbie sent in an audio comment hi david and katie floyd in your opinion is one of either plain text or pdf more future proof than the other i'm back in grad school 10 years after college and getting into nv alt for class notes and practicing with markdown there but i'm not writing for the web my writing is destined for the printed page or pdf in chicago style and i've been writing in pages for a finished and formatted term paper, including lots of footnotes and a bibliography, should I archive the PDF or a multi-markdown file? Thanks so much for answering questions like this and uh, many others. I really enjoy the show. All right. That was my bad. That was actually Aaron. And he was supposed to be later in the show. I clicked the Aaron was sitting next to Robbie in soundboard. So can we answer Aaron's question now instead? I think we can. <laughs> um, I think that there's nothing that's going to last longer than plain text. And Markdown is plain text. Um, uh, that being said, I don't think PDF is going anywhere in my lifetime. Yeah, I, I would agree with that as well. So I, I think either one is fine. Uh, why the way why I not do, do both? Yeah, exactly. I mean, hard drives are cheap, so why not both? If, he's, if you're talking about a term paper or a thesis or something like that, 
it depends. I mean, there there may be something to having this in its original format or as close to its original format as possible. Um, you know, if you're looking at preserving the footnotes and the annotations and things like that, and a, a PDF is going to give you what did this paper look like um, at the time that you presented it and at the time you, you turned it in. And there's something for that. So that that's why I would be inclined to keep a PDF of that because it's going to be the easiest way to reproduce and to share this paper in the future with with common folk or the everyday public. Uh, if you want to keep a, a copy for yourself as, as plain text, that's that's a great way to do it too, to make sure that you can always pull that data out. But I would say why not both? You know, I, I just had this issue with a, f- a friend of mine who asked for my help in converting old page maker files. And I don't even think we able figured out how to do it. It was it was old version of a page maker, which, you know, has since been replaced by... Um, uh, InDesign? Uh, InDesign. But, yeah, I believe so, yeah. yeah. But basically what he was looking for is he wasn't looking to edit these files. He was just looking to preserve them. And he was. Uh, this was his mother's, um, what is it that you create at a funeral, kind of like a flyer or handout that you give people, some kind of a memorial brochure? And yeah. um, he, want, he wanted to be able to preserve that. And a PDF would have been a perfect use, you know, just exporting that as a, as a PDF because, you know, maybe the first couple of versions of Illustrator or I'm sorry, InDesign would have been able to open that PageMaker file. But here we are 15 years down the, the line. I, I couldn't get the file open for him. I was devastated, but I, I could not find any way to get that file open for him. And I tried a number of online converters and I even downloaded the latest version of InDesign from the Creative Cloud as a demo couldn't get the file open for him. And, and if he had a PDF, it had still, he could have created a PDF then and it still would have been readable now. Yeah. Anything that I create that is kind of a visual document, like a diagram or even a legal brief. Um, I, at the end of the process, I don't just save the document. I always print out a PDF of it and save it along with it. And so you've got kind of a permanent digital printout is what a PDF is in essence. So that that's probably a good habit to get into. All right. So I'm sorry. Now, do we want to hear from Robbie? Why not? On, on using an old purposes for using an old iPhone. Here we go. Hi, Katie and David. My name is Robbie Burns, and I'm a big fan of the show. Thanks for doing it. I was listening to your episode on repurposing Mac and iOS devices last week, and I wanted to share a use for old iPhones and iPods that is becoming pretty popular. There are a number of apps on the App Store that allow you to turn an old iOS device into a security camera. I've settled on one called Presence. And what I do is I load up presents on my iPhone 4S and my iPhone 5S. And when I go on vacation, I will prop up my iPhone 4S in the back of my house, facing down the main hallway where uh, any suspicious activity would likely to be picked up. Uh, And then what presents will do is allow me to tap into that video feed from my iPhone 5S at any time, anywhere in the world. What I really like about the presents app is that if it detects motion, it can send me a push notification to my 5S, and it will even email me a 10-second video clip of the motion. It makes me feel a lot saner and at rest knowing that I have this little bit of glimpse into my home from far away. Uh, Presence also has another pretty cool feature. You can actually um, project your face onto the screen of the stationary old iOS device and have a chat with someone who is in your home. So if you are feeling particularly inclined to chat it up with that person who is robbing your home, you can do so. Or if someone is just, you know, feeding your dog and needs some instructions, you can pop right into that 
iPhone screen and chat it up. I hope this is useful to you and your listeners. Um, it's really easy to do and free. Thanks again for a great show. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Robbie. <laughs> I like that. The idea of talking to the guy who's ripping you off. <laughs> hey, don't go in that closet. <laughs> I'm calling the cops right now. Right now. Yeah, um, uh, and, yeah. and, and then as the guy reaches up and picks up the iPhone and walks out the door. We've had an alarm system in our house for a little while. When my, when my wife had that home business, we thought we should get one and just buy inertia. We haven't got rid of it yet. And and I just tell Daisy and I agree that we're going to get rid of it because we're tired of, of paying for it. And we're going to kind of do a homegrown thing. I want to wait until iOS 8 comes out and get a full you know feel for the you know this home kit and what works and doesn't work with it. But I'm going to probably be planning a show around it. So if you're out there and you're you're playing in that space, please send me an email. Maybe we'll have you on or, or use some of your comments as we develop that show. Didn't you buy some Kickstarter thing? I did, and it hasn't come to me yet. I bought a Kickstarter camera. It hasn't shipped yet. You know, it's the usual Kickstarter story. You know, they're, I don't know how far behind they are, but at some point it'll show up, and it probably won't work with HomeKit, and it will have been a waste of money, but we'll find out. But I've just decided I'm going to sit tight right now and just kind of let the initial HomeKit thing shake loose and then see what's out there and what the options are. Um, the uh, We also heard from uh, Storm talking about location-based tasks from Google+. No, he and, uh, posted this on our um, MPU Google yeah, Plus community. Yeah, exactly. So that's a great place to post uh, tips and questions because I sometimes peruse that for questions. But even more, you know, we've got like 1,700 people on there who are posting questions, posting tips. It's very active and great community. So if David or I can't answer a question or we're not getting back to you, post there. Yeah. And I am going to try and be more active in that. I'm just struggling lately. I'm so busy with, with everything going on, but uh, I definitely want to be more active. Um, so we talked about the fact that reminders isn't very useful for location based, um, items because you have to, um, you have to have the location for each item. Uh, but, uh, storm made the point, but you only need one item in the particular list to have the location associated with it in order for that entire list to be popped when you get close to the location. So for shopping list, uh, he has just one item that the location with the supermarket listed with it and he doesn't delete it. So um, then, then that will always pop up when you're near it and you can still use Siri to add things to your reminders. So I thought it was a really smart use. We should have thought of that. Well, yeah. And you could even just add a, I think what he's suggesting is you just add a something at the very top of that list that never gets deleted. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. With the location attached to it. So if you, right. Always go to the same supermarket, just have it so it always fires off. Um, I guess an alternative method is you could you could only you could mark it as done, and I believe you can later unmark it if the list is empty, but that seems like it's getting a little fiddly. Well then you gotta go back and see completed items and then yeah. dig it out and no, I wouldn't do yeah. it. Yeah. Smart. Smart. So now we run into listener questions, and, and we've already talked to, to Aaron, who asked about our archiving PDF to text, so we'll, we'll skip over that. Um, but Jason uh, wrote in and said, last week I bought a new 13-inch MacBook Pro with Retina display, and I'm in the process of loading all the individual apps that I regularly use, leaving all the old stuff out. Which raises a question, what apps are currently residing in your menu bar, and what apps do you automatically load at login? 
Wow. Do you so want to go many. there? That's that, <laughs> that could be a long time. Well, um, why don't you just run, run through your menu bar? I mean, first off, we did an entire show on menu bars, and maybe we could even revisit that at some point. Yeah, I think so. I've got Chronosync, Evernote, um, Time Machine, um, Hazel, Unclutter, Transporter, Dropbox, PopClip, Backblaze. Uh, what's the name of the uh, app that, not menu meters, but the, the one that just updated? iStat menus. iStat. And I've got all that put into a bartender menu. Right. And then the stuff on my main menu bar is actually very limited. Uh, I've got TweetBot and Text Expander, and, you know, the, the Apple suite of things and, um, and Fantastic Hell. So it's not a huge list. When I ever build, whenever I build a new Mac, and I just had to recently you know, build this Mac from scratch. I kind of make stuff earn its way on. I, I don't load everything I own immediately. I just load stuff as I need them. And that, that kind of helps keep it trim and doesn't add a bunch of apps that I'll never start. Yeah. I've got a lot of duplication with you, so I'll try to cover those only briefly, but I keep the uh, one password menu, menu bar backblaze. Caffeine is one that I like and I, I keep it in the bartender menu. Uh, Cloak, Dropbox, Evernote, Fantastical. Fruit Juice is an app that I'm I'm using quite a bit now to help me. Um, I was I was finding that my battery life was lagging, and this is a kind of a trainer to help train you to uh, unplug your Mac when you need to to exercise your battery. And it's it's actually really improved my battery life quite a bit. Um, so I'm I'm enjoying that. Um, yeah. So Fruit Juice tells you, hey, you should unplug for an hour today. Um, more like two keep, hours or more, but yeah. Well, it just depends, you know, on your battery health. But yeah. so if you keep your Mac plugged in all the time, your your laptop, that's a good reminder not to do that. Uh, let's see, what else? Um, Hazel, uh, Jettis, uh, actually, no, I don't use Jettison really anymore. Uh, Keyboard Maestro, uh, Little Snitch. I've been running Little Snitch recently um, to try to manage things when I'm on Wi-Fi versus when I'm on the school network. That, that's a whole other topic sometime. Uh, omnipresence, uh, text expander, transporter, and unclutter. So there's the quick rundown. Yeah, we've got a lot of overlap. There's some good ones in the chat room too. Uh, box.com, if that's your thing. So, yep, but I agree with you. Um, make make your apps earn the way back on, and and maybe we'll we'll focus on those more on a different on another show sometime. And yeah. by the way, got to get bartender. As you can see from our list, we have a lot of stuff. So, bartender. Yeah, which is all that. Everybody loves it. Everybody loves it that uses it. Um, the um, Craig wrote in about managing the family iMac, and he says we have a family iMac that the two kids and wife use. And he only uses occasionally for administration. So far, it has been used and logged into a single family login. But as the kids are getting older and started getting their own email and contacts, he's been wondering if he'd be better off having each of them having individual accounts. And he knows it's a bit of a hassle moving from person to person, but uh, he could allow each person to access it individually. And I can tell you that that was the plan for us. For many years, we had two Macs in the house. I had one, actually three, because my wife had one at two, but I had a laptop. My wife had a laptop and we, um, and we had a family iMac and the kids each had their own separate login. Uh, it was kind of a problem with iTunes, but now with iTunes match and then with the new things coming out with iOS eight, so we can actually have people have their own individual accounts. Um, I think that may be the way for you to go. And uh, in my case, eventually, I mean, as the kids got older, we decided to um, 
they did start getting, we did start getting them computers. And now we're down to the point where everybody has their own computer and there's not really an extra computer. So I get where you're coming from, Craig, and I'm sure you'll, you'll get through this. Yeah. And then wrapping it up for today, um, we got a question from Shelly about replacing, what do you do when you break your iOS device when you know updates are around the corner? And she said, I dropped my iPad mini on a tile, tile floor. Total belly flop. Screen is not just cracked. It is completely shattered. The entire face uh, looks like a shattered car window. I don't have Apple Care. It's a year old, maybe a little bit older. Is it worth fixing or should I just get a new one? And I'm I'm my I'm thinking from this that it's a retina iPad mini, maybe not, but but still the the advice is kind of the I guess the question is the same. What do you do when you've when you've broken an iOS device and you're close to an update or you know that updates are right around the corner? Ooh, that just kind of adds insult to injury, doesn't it? Yeah. I think it's just your own call. You can get this stuff fixed. I mean, there's there's resources out there and you can get it fixed cheaper than replacing it. And if you're happy with it and you're not somebody who has to have the latest and greatest, then I would say just get it fixed. If if not, um, you know, just go without for a little while. I guess it depends on how long you have to wait. We we just did a vacation with some some very close family friends. I mean, we had another family with us. We went to Florida and and uh, my cousin, she uh, she her her iPhone broke. And so her husband, who's in I.T., got her like a used Android from the from the work and she complained about that phone the entire trip, <laughs> but she knew the new iPhone was coming out. So she was willing to suck it down for um, a few weeks until she can get her new iPhone when the new ones are announced. Yeah. And part of it depends on how far you have to go and what the device is. I mean, if it's an iPad, I would hate it, but I could probably go without my iPad for a month or so and until a new device is, is introed. My iPhone, I don't know about that. That would be a much shorter window for me because I just use it all the day, every time. Now, you've got to have a phone. I've got to have a phone. So you could go get one of those um, pay-as-you-go phones and, and get your number temporarily transferred on it. That's an option. But I just want to point out that for most Apple devices, including an iPhone, including uh, an iPad, now the, the cost changes a little bit. But in Shelly's case, they, they typically offer flat fee service on these when they when something like this happens. And flat fee service on an iPad will cost you between $250 and $300, depending on what model iPad you have. And assuming it's not in warranty, assuming it's not covered, assuming you don't have Apple Care on it, you can walk in, tell the Apple folks what happened, and they will swap it out for you and give you a refurbished um, model for between 250 and 300 bucks. Again, depending on the model. Um, if it's a battery issue, then the battery swap is usually cheaper. Usually, that's 99 dollars. Now, when comparing this about whether Apple Care is a good deal or not, keep in mind that Apple Care Plus costs you 99 dollars plus 45 or 40 plus 50 dollars every time you have to do um, an accident-based trade. So you're basically looking at 150 dollars for one incident. Um, versus $250 to $300 to pay out of pocket. So, you know, consider the math there. There are also third parties that will will fix these devices besides Apple. And you may want to get a determination on on how much that will cost going from one of these kind of, you know, I've seen the kiosks in the mall or other stores that will pop up and replace these for you. Or you can always try doing it yourself, getting the parts from iFixit and, and do it yourself. Yeah, why not? I, I have always bought the Apple Care Plus for the phone. Yeah, me too. Because, because I don't buy cases generally. And, you know, and knock on wood, I've never broken one. But because, you know, we've got this family rotation, like the new phone's going to come out, I'm going to buy the new one. And then my daughter's going to get last year's model. 
And my kids, even though they put them in cases, managed to break them. And so I usually get my money back on the Apple Care Plus for the phones. Um, I'm not sure if it makes sense for the iPad or the Mac. It just depends on what you're doing. But for the phones, spending $100 is probably worth it. Yeah. Um, I've always done it for um, the phones. I've stopped doing it recently for the iPads. I don't know. The Macs are a little more up in the air for me now. Yeah, they're, they're really good. They just don't, I haven't had one break in like 10 years, you know, within warranty. So if you wonder anyway, um, all right, you know what? We've gone along enough. I guess we've got some more stuff. We'll put that up to the, to the next live show next month. Uh, on the subject of iPhones, um, the September 9th event is a few days after we record this, but a few days before we release this. So we're not going to speculate because by the time you hear this, Apple will have all the answers out. Um, we are going to cover the announcements a little bit on next week's show, which will show up just a few days after this show goes air because we put two out a week when we do these live shows. So the following the week, the following weekend after the September 9th announcement, Katie and I are going to cover it a little bit. We're not going to do a news type coverage. We're just going to kind of talk about our own thoughts and and concerns and and, and joy arising from all these announcements. So if you want to hear what we're going to say, you'll get it with the next show. Hang on. You're not you're not going to throw your guesses out there for everybody to laugh at because the show comes out like Wednesday or Thursday after the event. So they'll they'll I, know if you're right or wrong. I don't know. I don't think there's that much to guess on. I mean, as things start to, you know, if you look at any rumor site, they've got pictures now. and It looks like we're going to get two phones and one. The bigger one may be a little have a little bit better features, but may take a little longer and. And the, the wearable, I guess that's something we can guess on because there's really very little information on that. I, I, think, I think announced it's going to be but, like a watch. Yeah. Announced but not released on the wearable. Um, I, th- I think yeah. you'll see that in the kind of the the spring time frame. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know what to think about the 5.5-inch phone because we just haven't seen any leaks. I think it's likely that, that you could see a 5.5-inch phone. I just can't believe that Apple would introduce another phone and not release it at the same time as a 4.7-inch phone because I think people would with would would not buy the 4.7-inch phone until they see the 5.5-inch phone. Well, if it's going to take them six months, then they wouldn't. If it's going to take them one month, then they probably would. They've done that before. They did remember, that with the iPad. Remember the white iPhone? Yeah. The well, original white re- iPhone that never came. I was thinking about the iPad mini. I mean, they announced that there'll be a retina iPad mini and you can buy the iPad air right now. And within a month or so, the iPad retina iPad mini was out in the wild. I could see that happening. I mean, the, the reason why everybody's speculating that I guess we're going on this too long, but there's not that many pictures of parts of the 5.5. So that would indicate that it's not as far along in the production process as the 4.7 is. But, you know, as people are listening to this, this is all already known. So let's just stop. Okay. All right. Well, you can find links to everything that we've talked about in this show. Thank you, Haley, for doing that for us over at MacPowerUsers.com or at 5x5.tv slash MPU. You can also send us feedback to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. And you can find us on Twitter. We're at MacPowerUsers. Katie's at Katie Floyd, and I'm at David Sparks. I'm sorry, I'm at Max Parky. Yes, you are. Brain are, fart. Uh-huh. We will uh, we'll wait to see what Apple releases on September 9th. By the time you hear this, you already know. We'll see you next time.